From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Federal employees will get all of 2021 to pay back their payroll tax deferrals through a provision in the funding bill President Trump signed on Sunday. The bill also includes a 1% pay raise for civilian employees next year. The original White House plan was for a pay freeze in 2021. The National Defense Authorization Act President Trump vetoed is closer to becoming law tonight. The House of Representatives voted 322 to 87 to override the veto. GovExec reports the bill includes provisions for employee leave and paid parental leave. Bid protests are down across government this calendar year. The Government Accountability Office says contractors filed 2,149 cases in 2020. That's off 2% from the 2,198 cases contractors filed in 2019. Even though the number of protests is going down overall, two huge contracts at the Defense Department are in two different stages of protest. Amazon Web Services has opened up a new front in its protest of the Jedi cloud contract. Perspecta lost a second round in its protest of the Navy's award of its NGNR contract to Lidos. Joe Jordan is CEO at Octoparo, former administrator of federal procurement policy. Joe, it's good to see you again. Uh, Happy New Year. What's your takeaway from this? What's the motivation beyond money for a company to keep pushing a protest? Not specifically those two cases that I mentioned necessarily, but more broadly. Sure, and thanks for having me, Francis. There are a number of reasons that companies want to protest, right? When you lose an award, all of us business owners feel like any rational, impartial person is going to say that our company provides the best value to the government, the highest quality goods and services at an unbeatable price. And so when the buyer decides that's not true and goes with one of your competitors, it stings. And, you know, sometimes in the heat of the competition, you say, well, this is unfair. And so you push the protest because, you know, of those sorts of things. But there are often very legitimate reasons that firms protest. You know, sometimes there is an error in either the solicitation or uh, the award decision. And, um, you know, you mentioned that about 2,100 cases were filed with GAO and uh, 15% of those protests were sustained. So, you know, there's there are mistakes made and legitimate reasons to protest. Also, other times, you know, like perhaps in the cases that you mentioned, the value of these contracts is so high. You know, $8 billion for NGNR, $10 billion for Jedi, that, hey, what the heck? The expected value calculation in my math, when you have a small percent chance of winning, but a $10 billion prize if you do win, is still worth, you know, those legal fees. And then the last reason that I've seen a lot of is when you're an incumbent, and this is the one I hate the most, honestly, when you're an incumbent and you know that protesting is going to delay the award of the follow-on contract by you know 100 days or so, that's revenue to you for 100 days that you wouldn't have got because the new contractor can't come in until that protest is decided usually. Um, and so you know that's one area that, that's frustrating, but, but there are a lot of uh, both emotional and logical reasons that protests get filed. Uh, a shout out to our friend Steve Schooner. If none of his students have done it, one of them should make a matrix of the value of a contract along the side and across the bottom 
um, the the number of protests and and see what that looks like because I bet that if we mapped it we'd find that a lot of those protests are on those high value deals you think that's a fair observation Joe you know what I would I do think it's fair but I would say it's this is not based on my analysis of the data yet but it's almost like uh, bipolar where you've got a lot of those protests around the big deals especially with the government's move over the last decade to uh, indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity, multiple year contracts. But then you also have a lot at the tiny end where, hey, this just isn't fair and the, the cost of filing is low. Um, you also see, you know, unfortunately, you know, I've had experience with this where you've got some nuisance filers who just, you know, are angry, want to make a point and um, take advantage of the fact that uh, small businesses bear little to no cost when filing a protest. And so you'd see some down at that end, too. I bet that's what it looks like. You mentioned the 15% sustain rate, Joe, and that it strikes me the flip side of that is 85% of them are dismissed. And I, I wonder what that means for the prospects moving forward. You know, I look at these GAO numbers, and over the past four years or so at least, that number's held pretty close. That, is, is any reason to believe that'll change in the near future? None at all. Uh, the data indicates that for the last roughly decade, um, the sustain rate's been between 13 and 17 percent. Um, so this year's, you know, just a few days ago when GAO released the numbers you referenced and it came out at 15 percent, I mean, you're looking at smack dab in the middle of that range, right where, you know, you would expect. Um, there was a bit of an outlier back in 2016 where you had 2,800 cases filed and 23 percent of those were sustained. So both a peak in terms of number of cases and a peak in terms of sustain rate. And so I think, you know, there were some uh, peculiarities that year and also it served as a bit of a wake up call. And ever since then, you've seen both the number of cases uh, filed go down and uh, the sustain rate get back into that kind of um, low double digits uh, sustain rate. You and I have talked about protests a lot over the years. You're kind of a nerd for this like I am. What would you watch in 2021? What, what do you think has the potential to make an impact? The overall number, the size of the protests, the vehicles, the types of vehicles that are protested. What will you pay attention to, Joe? I'll look at three things. One, what's going on with these big multiple award, multi-vendor contracts? You saw GSA's disaster with Alliant 2. I, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many small businesses come up to me and like I say I spent tens of thousands of dollars to put my proposal together, figure out how to do this to make sure I could deliver if awarded. And then for GSA to say, oh, just kidding, we're canceling and rethinking all of this. That was a real disaster. And so what does that portend for agencies continuing to leverage that sort of approach with those multiple award vehicles? Second thing I'd look at is you have a lot of dollars during uh, the pandemic, the COVID related uh, contracting that was done quickly. It had to, necessity dictated that those contracts get out quickly. Well, what's going to happen with kind of follow-ons to that work, and, and is there you know, going to be an increase in protest there? And then third, you mentioned Jedi right from the top, and Amazon and Microsoft and before Oracle duking it out there. You know, this is really unprecedented. Uh, you know, to have the President of the United States perhaps put his thumb on the scale for a $10 billion Defense Department contract isn't something that had really ever been contemplated before. And so to see that one play out, uh, certainly Jeff Bezos and Amazon aren't going to run out of funding to fight the fight. Um, that will be very interesting. And certainly it's the one protest in the history of my time in this space that has come up at cocktail parties and not just 
with my procurement nerd friends, but with normal people too. And so uh, that'll be the third thing I'll be watching, see how that plays out. Joe Jordan, thanks very much. Great to have you back on Old Sport. Thanks, Francis. Happy New Year, my friend. Up next, new tools in the new year for financial managers. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a bigger financial management toolbox for every agency and the whole government. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The Senate's passed the CFO Vision Act of 2020. The bill would standardize chief financial officer responsibilities across the government if it becomes law. Mallory Bard-Bullman is research director of finance process excellence at Gartner. Mallory, welcome. It's great to see you again. This strikes me as a legislation that's maybe similar to FITARA, that it, it kind of elevates and codifies the job of the chief information officer. Am I reading this right? Or is there more to it than that? Absolutely, and thanks for having me, Francis. So the CFO Vision Act really for, focuses on further standardizing government-wide financial management. And, you know, as you and I know, the CFO Act passed 30 years ago. And when that happens in government, when we reach that kind of milestone, we don't hold a party. We look at what's happened since then. And, and GAO did exactly that in August. What they looked at was ways that government has advanced in financial management over the years, but also really found that there still needed to be further standardization of CFO responsibilities, better management of the federal financial workforce, as well as better metrics to really help agencies know how they're doing. It strikes me that the biggest development, especially over the last five years, haven't been around for all 30 years since the CFO Act passed, but over the last five years, it strikes me that financial managers in government talk most about the introduction of enterprise risk management and, and risk management broadly as uh, the biggest development they've wrestled with. Is that a fair observation, do you think? I think that is a fair observation. And one of the things the act does is it specifies that the CFO is to have in coordination with other key stakeholders, like the chief risk officer, the chief information officer, the chief data officer. And one thing that we at Gartner have found in our research is that leading CFOs really have what we call a constructive tension with key stakeholders. It means that these aren't just dotted line relationships. They really are conversations where you can have that sort of push and pull, figure out what the best customer be. I note that uh, a number of years ago when I was at the uh, Federal News Radio, I did a conversation with Simone Zickman and Scott Quell, Simone at the time was the chief information officer, the Commerce Department, Scott was the CFO. And it was almost a case study because at that time, this is probably 10 years ago, at the time, a, an integral close working relationship between those two stakeholders was an anomaly. It wasn't common. And I, I imagine what this bill is getting at is that should be the rule and not the exception, right, Mallory? That's exactly right. You want to make sure that there is a meaningful relationship between the different functions within the agency. Federal financial management and financial management in general shouldn't just exist within a silo. We have found that leading CFOs really have a strong customer orientation, a real understanding of what's happening in the businesses, and they're able to help guide financially smart decisions for the business. 
The CFOs that are successful at doing that, Mallory, at engaging these other stakeholders in their organizations, whether we're talking about government or the private sector, how do they learn those businesses? How do they learn those portfolios? And what's the right balance of understanding and over-understanding while, while maybe losing focus of the CFO responsibilities? That's a great question. And what it really comes about is really smart decision-making about where people are putting their time. Not everybody needs to be an expert in everything, but those strong relationships between the functions really help. The other thing that the act gets at is meaningful financial metrics. When we've talked with decision makers within leading companies, what they've said is, is they always use metrics. It's not a nice to have, it's a need to have. And when they really have information at a disaggregated level, they're able to see where their part of the business comes into play. They're able to make more meaningfully meaningful decisions. And you anticipated my next question, what are the right metrics and how does one read them correctly? Sure, so the right metrics are really going to be usable. And you wanna make sure that the metrics are disaggregated so each part of the business or each part of the agency is able to see themselves. They're able to understand how they fit into the better picture. They also are able to understand how they compare to other parts. The second thing that Gartner has found in our research is they're sometimes forward-looking, really building the capability for forecasting and future-looking is really important when looking at financial metrics. Uh, one, one of the issues that uh, CFOs talk about on an ongoing basis is their workforces. What is your sense of the current state of the federal financial management workforce, Mallory? Sure. The federal financial management workforce, like all workforces, is evolving. This is a workforce where there's a real need to get comfortable with AI and robotics to really understand how the workforce can leverage these tools to do their work smarter and faster. This also is a workforce that really needs to understand collaboration. Uh, they need to be able to work across silos to be able to, to leverage different parts of the business's skills. Also, as we're seeing increased telework, there's an opportunity to look for people with this mix of talents around the country. There are pockets of people who are untapped right now, but there's greater opportunities to leverage telework and really leverage uh, workforces in different places. Uh, I mentioned enterprise risk management as kind of the revolution in financial management in the federal government over the last five years. Is automation the next five years revolution potential, do you think, Mallory? I think it's part of the story. I think we need to start looking at automation. We need to start looking at RPA. There is a lot of repeatable processes in federal finance that can really leverage these technologies in very simple ways, and it can make staff time be put towards more meaningful work. Mallory, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you back. Thanks very much. Coming next, the uphill battle on Capitol Hill to modernize government IT. Straight ahead on Government Matters, top recommendations to the Biden administration to transform the digital landscape. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. The fallout from the solar winds breach is getting worse and worse as we learn more about where and what it hit in government. 
The Alliance for Digital Innovation has new recommendations for IT modernization for the incoming Biden administration. Matt Cornelius is executive director of the Alliance for Digital Innovation. He's former senior advisor for technology and cybersecurity policy to the federal chief information officer. Matt, uh, thanks for coming on the program. These recommendations that you and your colleagues are making, do they change at all, do you think, in the light of what we're learning about the big cyber breach? Uh, well, first, thanks for having me, Francis. And, and to answer your question, no. In fact, I think the recommendations are more important post-solar winds than they were perhaps even before then. Because uh, what we're seeing in IT modernization and accelerating innovation in government is that security can really be the enabler to innovation. It doesn't have to be the impediment to innovation. And I think as we're starting to, uh, to scale a lot of these new technologies that we need to see, and we need the government to function more effectively as an enterprise and function more uh, less like individual agencies dealing with individual agency problems and more like a comprehensive, coordinated federal government. Uh, I think a lot of the recommendations we put forward will accelerate that while improving security and getting better outcomes for citizens at the same time. All right, three main pillars of recommendations here. Let's walk through each of them, a thumbnail sure. on each, if you will, please. First one is uh, fixing the way the government acquires and uses technology solutions. I think the government's been talking about this since they've acquired technology solutions. What, what specifically would you like to see happen, Matt? Sure, so uh, there's, there's a few things, right? Part of it is we need a brand new legislative foundation for the way the government uh, should be working with industry to buy and use commercial capabilities going forward. So, uh, you know, a lot of the laws that underpin the way OMB or GSA or, or a lot of federal agencies operate now are 20 and 25 years old. Um, the, the federal market and the, the technology market have moved so much further, so much faster in that time that we really just need uh, a fresh start. So that, that's a big part of it. But even without some sort of comprehensive legislative update, which again is going to be very difficult, there are several other things that uh, the President-elect Biden's administration and Congress can focus on that can really help here. So part of it is um, better sort of enterprise-wide adoption of commercial capabilities, right? I think you've heard Deputy Federal CEO Maria Rote talk about this, as well as lots of other CEOs in government. And then making sure that agencies have a flexible funding models and rapid acquisition authorities so that they can embrace these as a service capabilities and, and consumption buying patterns and sort of consumption-based buying that are so important and is gonna drive the innovation agenda going forward. The second one is securing federal networks data and information. Connect your recommendation to your comment earlier that the SolarWinds hack will drive the need for these changes. Yeah, I think what you've seen with SolarWinds is, um, you know, agencies really just aren't that unique. Right there, there's there's a lot of devices, there's a lot of hardware and software on agency networks that, um, for whatever reason, um, are not being reported on effectively, uh, and that security is not happening at the pace of technology and at the pace of use in agencies. So, right now, the way sort of FISMA, the Federal Information Security Modernization Act, operates, you know, you have yearly IG assessments, you have quarterly CIO assessments, you know. This, like, that doesn't work in the modern security paradigm. So, like I said earlier, security, when done poorly and slowly and in a sort of checkbox compliance regime, uh, that is an obstacle to innovation, and that's an obstacle to actual useful real-time security. So part of uh, reforming not just um, the way the government uh, sort of collects data and oversees 
uh, federal cybersecurity. You know, as we move to more zero trust models, as we adopt sort of the TIC 3.0 policy and, and move agencies into a more secure telework future, um, we're going to need to be able to collect better data, act on it more timely, and not have a lot of these lags in reporting uh, that lead to a lot of the confusion I think you've seen in some of the early parts of the SolarWinds response. Matt, just a couple of minutes left for the uh, third uh, pillar, which is creating a strong foundation for the future of IT modernization. What insight do you have for that one based on your tenure at OMB? Sure, so part of this is a recognition that um, a lot of the things we want to do quickly uh, and effectively don't work unless there's a long-term foundation for change. So part of that is ensuring that we have a workforce, whether it's a current workforce or new people that are getting into federal service, who are well-trained and who understand technology, know how to use it effectively, know how to buy it effectively, and know where the market's going and know how what's happening in industry, how that can really impact mission and program delivery in government. So that, that's a big part of it. Um, one of the other pieces is ensuring that um, uh, the way uh, the government has uh, focused on digital service delivery over the past sort of five or six years um, we really need a better comprehensive strategy there. It's, it's not enough to just stand up programs that have shown successes like 18F or the U.S. Digital Service, but we really need President Biden and whoever he's going to have as a GSA administrator, as a CISA director, as a deputy director for management at OMB. They need to come in and really think about what these roles should be, what GSA's mission should be, and really connect policy to implementation so that we can get some sustainable, aggressive, outcomes-driven modernization happening across the board. Matt Cornelius, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you on the program again. Thank you, Francis. Appreciate it. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every one of our shows by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. I'm Sharice Hanner. Government Matters is always one click away whenever you want to get the latest in the business of government. Like us on Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, follow us on Twitter, and connect with us on LinkedIn. While you're on the go, tune into the Government Matters podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and TuneIn. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.